challenges foreign and domestic. One year later, Kyiv stands. President Biden makes a dramatic secret trip to Ukraine, marking the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. He should have uh, been here a long time ago. As some Republicans criticize the president, arguing he should be more focused on domestic issues, like the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and the southern border. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. This week, the critical foreign and domestic challenges facing the nation were on full display. It was one year ago today that Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. To mark the anniversary, President Biden made a secretly planned trip to Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. There he met with the country's president, Vladimir Zelensky, and with air raid sirens ringing, the two leaders walked through the city in a dramatic moment. President Biden also announced a new half-billion-dollar aid package to Ukraine, which Zelensky praised. Together, we will protect our Ukrainian cities and our people from Russian terror and powerfully strengthen the impulse towards our victory. On Tuesday, President Biden also delivered a speech in neighboring Poland, where he pledged to continue to support Ukraine and NATO allies. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. Meanwhile, Republicans criticized President Biden's trip and argued he was neglecting domestic issues like the environmental fallout from the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Here's former President Trump criticizing Biden as Trump visited the Ohio village. He should have uh, been here a long time ago. Boot edge edge. Whenever he comes, he's got to do his job. And if we didn't come, they never would have come. In response to some criticism, Biden aides noted that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, as well as the EPA Administrator Michael Regan, have visited East Palestine as officials deal with the aftermath. Joining me tonight to discuss this and more, Vivian Salama, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal, David Sanger, White House and national security correspondent at The New York Times, and joining me here at the table, Weijia Zhang, senior White House correspondent for CBS News, and Abby Phillip, senior political correspondent for CNN and anchor of Inside Politics Sunday with Abby Phillip. So thank you all for being here. Vivian, you, of course, have spent a lot of time in Ukraine over this last year. What strikes you? What, what are the key takeaways for you as you think about how this year has unfolded and, frankly, how Ukraine has been able to hold its own? Um, it's pretty extraordinary, Yamish, that we are at the one-year mark. And you just said it. The fact that Ukrainian forces were able to hold their own is probably the biggest takeaway. A, a lot of people all over the world really questioning their abilities, despite the fact that the West was pouring in weapons and all kinds of aid for years before uh, Russia invaded a year ago. Um, but still, Russian forces were just deemed to be bigger, stronger, with uh, better weaponry. And the odds were against the Ukrainians. At least that's what everyone thought. And so their performance was one of the most incredible takeaways that we look back at this year. And then finally, just the West and the way that they kind of came together with Washington leading the way um, to, to assist the Ukrainians. We saw the lengths at which they would be willing to go and also which the lengths that they would not be willing to go to help the Ukrainians. And so that was definitely the big story on this side of the pond, if you will, uh, you know, with regard to the war. Now, looking forward, 
we're, it's going to be about momentum. How can you keep that momentum going? And that's going to be the big story in the coming year. And David, of course, that is going to be the big question because, of course, there's the question of how long can Ukraine really hold it, the line here? But also there's a question of whether or not the Biden administration, um, whether or not they're going to continue to support Ukraine in this way. What's your reporting reveal? Well, it's really been a remarkable week here uh, in Europe and just the sight of the president being able to make his way into uh, into Ukraine and to walk around Kiev, even if briefly. And, you know, domestically, I think uh, the political image of an 80-year-old president who many have criticized for his age and so forth, being able to make that trip and, you know, come back out and give what was a pretty rousing speech uh, in Warsaw. Um, that said, uh, I think that in addition to the things that, uh, that Vivian pointed out about the unity of NATO and so forth, I think one of the big questions is, um, have we seen the sort of high watermark of our ability to bring arms into uh, Ukraine? Uh, at this point, uh, a lot of nations, including the United States, say they are running low on the ammunition that Ukraine needs. Uh, the effort to try to ramp that up has been slower than we thought. Um, I think the second thing is that we have to remember that the Russians, while they have suffered a lot at probably 200,000 casualties, um, their economy is actually chugging right along because they still had a lot of people buying their oil. And that includes China. It includes India. We've seen new relationships with Iran and North Korea. Uh, the White House said today that Iran, in addition to providing them with drones, is providing them now with, with armor. So I think one of the big issues we'll be looking at is, does the world go back into these blocks that uh, we saw that are, have a lot of similarities with the Cold War? And that's a scary prospect. I mean, that is definitely a scary prospect. And Weijia, um, I want to go back to the idea that this was a secretly planned trip. The White House says they were working on it for months. Um, what's the significance of that, especially given this moment and, and sort of the questions that surround how much aid we can give Ukraine? That's right. President Biden has wanted to make this trip for quite some time now. The problem is, obviously, um, it is a war zone, and he is a president. We don't even have boots on the ground there. But this is also a president who cares deeply about legacy. And in his view, this trip was not just about what was unfolding in Ukraine at the time. This trip was about leaving a mark um, for the centerpiece of his foreign policy to really show that the U.S. is not going to stand for, is not going to stand by any autocracy trying to dismantle a democracy. And that is why it was so crucial for him to send that message from Kyiv and not just from the U.S. But with regard to how you look forward with this um, when it comes to aid, you know, Republicans have already been threatening um, to, uh, you know, not write a blank check, their words, and to audit uh, what the U.S. has already spent. There is more hesitancy, even though there is bipartisan support on the Hill um, to fund this war. I think that is softening, not only on Capitol Hill, but also when you look at public polling. Um, so the big question now, I think, remains not only how much uh, the U.S. is able to give to sustain the position, but are you going to give Ukraine what it needs to win? Because winning is very different from not losing. And so far, they do not have what they need to win. Um, and that, you know, brings up the, the F-16 fighter jets that Ukraine wants that the president just said tonight in a new interview that 
as of right now, he's not going to provide. And, and I think that's a really important point because that's one of, I think, going to be the biggest divides going forward. How important is it going to be that there are some people on the Republican side who uh, want to pull back on Ukraine aid, or is it going to be more important that the voices that have the power, the committee ja javels, uh, gavels, the uh, Mitch McConnell's of the world in the Senate, the um, Kevin McCarthy's even in the House, uh, they are actually attacking Biden from the right, saying he moved too slowly here. And you're seeing Biden uh, tonight, in, in as you were just saying, reaffirming he does not believe that F-16s are the next step. And that really gives you a window into the White House's thinking on this. They do not want to push, be pushed further than they are willing to go when it comes to arming the Ukrainians. Uh, however, I think there's a growing argument to be made on all sides. I've been hearing this from, uh, you know, national security analysts who are more to the left and also those on the right that are really asking the question, why not, even if you don't want to give the planes right at this moment, why not start the training process? It's about a one-year lead time. Why not start that now? And I think the Biden administration hasn't really been able to give an answer to that question. I think a big elephant in the room is that they are still to some degree, concerned about going too far and needlessly provoking Russia at a moment when Russia is still incredibly bellicose and making threats, they are still a nuclear power, even though their army has proven to be much more weak than people expected. And you really, in some ways, hit on this point that I was going to ask you about, Abby, which is that Congress has appropriated, and I had to write it down, $112 billion so far. But you have the American people in polling that Weijia was just talking about. That, that, that support for Ukraine is softening. What's your sense of how much the American people and their views are going to play into this when you think about the politics of all of this? Look, I do think that you're going to see more of that. There's a probably a calcified 30% of the American electorate uh, that is that is much more likely to go along with the far-right politics on this situation, which is calling for a pullback from Ukraine. But I do think that the White House still believes that they have a solid majority of the country uh, that is comfortable with the level of aid and assistance to Ukraine right now. Perhaps they don't want it to be too much, but they're comfortable with where it is right now. Uh, they're going to have to jump through some hoops. They're cognizant of that. But I don't hear a whole lot of alarm inside of the administration that the spigot of money is going to stop flowing, even as the approval rating from the American public goes down. Yeah. Um, and Vivian, I want to come back to you because you had some also critical reporting um, on China possibly weighing, providing lethal aid to Russia to, to continue this war in Ukraine. Explain that reporting and why, based on your reporting, would China take that step at this moment? So, Yamisha, up until now, China has been exercising a level of self-restraint when it comes to providing weapons or any kind of lethal aid to Russia. They have given Russia money. They have purchased oil, as David said earlier. But they've really held off on that one red line in the view of Washington, which is providing weapons for the battle in Ukraine, um, partially because they did not want uh, to embolden Russia. For them, seeing an emboldened Moscow could be problematic. Um, um, for, for many reasons. But at the same time, it's a lot worse for them to see Moscow crumble, whether it's economically, militarily. They just feel like that would come back and haunt 
China. And so they have been considering now providing weapons in the form of most likely ammunition, kind of starting small and working their way up. And U.S. intelligence and European intelligence is now revealing that while they were hesitant at first, they are really looking to take this next step. And so Washington and its allies have been collaborating and discussing in recent days whether or not to declassify that intelligence like they have with so much other intelligence so far with regard to Iran helping the Russian forces and North Korea helping Russian forces. It would be sort of in the same vein. But of course, this comes against the backdrop of growing tensions with China because of its intensifying campaign toward uh, Taiwan, because of the surveillance balloon that was shot down uh, in the Atlantic, over the Atlantic Ocean a few weeks ago. And so it's going to be a really tricky, uh, tricky maneuver and a tricky diplomatic uh, issue that they're going to have to face. I'm traveling with uh, Secretary of State Blinken next week to the G20, where he may once again see his Chinese counterpart. And sh uh, we know that it came up in Munich last week when they met up and it will certainly come again uh, come up again this is something that is deeply concerning to Washington and its allies across uh, Europe and David what's your reporting on this when you think about what China's weighing here but also and this is maybe a hard question but the thinking of Putin it's hard of course to know exactly what he's thinking but you think about the fact that he's pulling out of nuclear um, treaties he's also of course giving these speeches where he's finally using the word war what's your reporting show well, two things. Uh, first, to follow on Vivian's uh, point, I think the nature of the relationship between Russia and China in the next year or so may be the biggest single international story. The Chinese are in the superior position in this relationship, and Putin doesn't like that. You know, back in the old Cold War, the Soviet Union was the largest force out there, and China was still an agrarian society. Nobody really thought of it as the world, uh, the coming world's second largest economy. Um, the Chinese and the uh, Russians have pledged a relationship uh, without limits, but we've seen some of those limits in in recent times, as Vivian explained. If those go away, then we're in a very, very different world, and President Biden will be facing a situation that really is a lot more complex than the Cold War ever was when we really only had one significant um, uh, uh, adversary there. The uh, bigger question of what's inside Putin's mind, well, at this point, he has shown an obsession, of course, with Ukraine. But he's also been careful not to take the war beyond Ukraine's borders. And if there was any single topic that worried people the most at the Munich Security Conference last weekend or when we were in Warsaw, right, of course, on the Russian border, it's that that will change. We're already seeing very very large increase in cyber attacks in Poland. Uh, we've seen that for the past year. Whether those spill over into broader and kinetic attacks on NATO countries is a big issue. Um, some people believe Putin does not want to take the risk of taking on all of NATO, but it's also possible that he may get so frustrated about uh, his lack of progress in Ukraine that he's got to take it out on the West somehow. And as we talk about sort of the international issues that are going on, Weijia, there's also the domestic issues at play. We said it at the beginning. Uh, there was a lot of GOP criticism for President Biden's trip to Ukraine, people mm -hmm. saying he should be in East Palestine, he should be on the southern border. How concerned, if at all, is the White House about these criticisms? Uh, the White House, I think, is aware that um, they could have handled the situation, especially in East Palestine, better than they did because, um, you know, the transportation secretary fumbled a few times. He was... Um, 
uh, criticized for being flippant about this derailment, at, you know, clumping it with the other um, hundreds of derailments that happen across the country, you know, every day. And so I think that um, that insensitivity that was interpreted as insensitivity, when really, I mean, the administration continues to say, look, we were there um, within two hours. The president just said that again tonight, that the, the agencies that would normally respond to this sort of thing were, in fact, there. But, of course, the optics also matter. And um, Republicans really seized on the fact that he was abroad, that he was committing money uh, to another country, instead of, you know, at the site of this emergency disaster and, you know, showing um, uh, that he was there for them physically. And so I think the administration, you know, they will continue to make the case that they've done everything, that they are the first line of defense, that they have responded in the appropriate ways. Um, and the president also said that he didn't get any requests to go visit. Um, and, you know, that as of now, even, he doesn't have any plans to go there. Um, and this isn't necessarily unique, because anytime there's a major disaster like this, he's very concerned about getting in the way of the response, about being a distraction. So I think they are, um, you know, hopefully, you know, continuing to hammer these points home that uh, they did everything they were supposed to do. And Abby, I mean, we covered President Trump together. It wasn't surprising to see him there <clears throat> passing out water yeah. while also passing out those red MAGA hats. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of things? Now, look, I mean, this is Trump country. I mean, that part, that county where East Palestine is went for Trump by some 45 points in the 2020 election. It is uh, not in any... It used to be, actually, a, a swing county back in the... the um, in the Bush years. But this is, these are his people. Uh, they are deeply supportive of him. One of our correspondents who was on the ground there says there are Trump flags, Trump signs everywhere in East Palestine. And it was a, uh, an opportunity for Republicans and conservatives to do two things at once, to criticize Biden, but also to criticize Pete Buttigieg, who, while he is the transportation secretary, if you watch conservative media and you see how they approach him, they treat him as Biden's heir apparent, actually. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a very important, I think, political attack on Biden. Um, but, you know, I think we should just be frank with the audience, the two things are not actually related. Uh, there is no money that is going to Ukraine that would have gone to right. East Palestine and, and vice versa. And then, and beyond that, um, this is an environmental disaster, and the EPA was, in fact, on the ground. But the White House missed an opportunity to have a public face to what is an actual human tragedy on the ground there, people's livelihoods, uh, and even potentially their lives now uh, in the balance after what happened with that train derailment. And Vivian, in the, the couple minutes we have left here, jump in here just on your sense of the GOP pitting. It seems artificially, I think that it's fair to say that, East Palestine against Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. I think at this point, you know, the, the, the politically charged environment that we're in right now, um, you're going to see that a lot. And frankly speaking, um, any president who is on the road somewhere and something happens back home, he's he or she would immediately get some criticism and it's just inevitable. And so what you're seeing was partially that and partially just a sign of the times, a sign of the environment here in Washington that we're in. And so President Biden, obviously very committed to the Ukrainian cause. This was a top foreign policy challenge. We did mention that this has been planned for months and months. Uh, but 
whether or not he should have done something to rearrange the trip or not, obviously they were very committed to hitting the anniversary date. And so regardless, they made that decision and they were going to, to make that the, uh, the priority for him to physically be there and send uh, the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg. And David, I'm going to give my last 30 seconds to you. Tell me what's next here as you think about sort of the Biden administration's um, stance on Ukraine and how they're going to balance domestic issues. Again, 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, you know, you meet great powers have to learn how to run their own country and be great powers at the same time. I think Biden's been around long enough and was in the Senate long enough to recognize that's a hard balancing act. But you could be equally criticized if, for example, he was uh, allowing Russia to run right across democratic societies. So he's got to do both. And that's called being president. He's got to do both. And that's called being president. Isn't that a way to end this show? Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much to our panel for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And don't forget to watch PBS News Weekend on Saturday for a story of an African-American Air Force pilot who helped pave the way for NASA's black astronauts. And finally, I want to note that this is my last time moderating Washington Week. As I announced last week, I've made the difficult decision to step away from the role to focus full time on my commitments to NBC News as a Washington correspondent and to finish my upcoming memoir. It's been an honor, a complete honor, to be in your homes every Friday and to help you, the viewers, make sense of all the news that we have to cover. Thank you so much for watching. I also could not have done this work without the stellar team here at Washington Week. So thank you all, of course, for your efforts. And I've also been blessed, really blessed, to honor the life and legacy of Gwen Ifill, the longtime iconic Washington Week moderator who absolutely loved this program and personally mentored me and so many other women. I thank her in my heart often for giving me courage and confidence. At last, I hope this isn't a goodbye, but rather a see you later, as I hope to see you all on the next big story as I continue my work. I'm Yami Shalsendor. Good night from Washington.